Good morning. Take your Bibles and go to the book of John, chapter 20. Our early service began, or one of the early segments of the early service was our children's minister who got up and finally admitted after two years that he was confused. I told him that admitting that you have a problem is the first step towards getting help, and I was glad that he finally figured out that he needed help. Uh, But actually, that provided me the great opportunity as a jumping off part into our message this morning uh, about being confused. Last Sunday, as soon as this worship service was over, Tracy and I crawled into our car and drove to Odessa, or as I like to refer to it, slow death. And that's an 11-hour drive, and uh, so... We've made that a number of times. Her mother is in ill health and needs some various attention, and so it was time for us to go make that trip. So on January the 1st, uh, immediately after the service, we jumped in the car and headed across. And I've made that trip enough that I'm not saying I could do it in my sleep, but I can do it pretty much without the need to have to wonder where the turns are. And I couldn't tell you if my life depended on what the road numbers are but I can get you there without any mistakes. Which is an interesting thing because that's 11 hours, or as it was on the way home, 14 hours worth of driving. But you get me into a particular section of Houston and all bets are off. I'm the confused one at that point. Found myself there yesterday. Now it's not that I don't know Houston because I actually lived there for a number of years in the younger part of my life. My uh, dad worked in downtown Houston. We lived in southwest Houston, and so we regularly drove through what is now the medical district. I know that area. Um, Except that they have this uh, propensity towards blocking off streets, and then everything else is up for grabs. And so I found myself there yesterday as uh, I Uh, We got home late Thursday night after being in Odessa all week, and I had uh, things that I needed to do on Friday tied to office stuff and funeral planning. And um, so yesterday I got a call about one of our church members who was in grave health over there. And so we headed off, I did, and found myself in downtown Houston knowing exactly where I needed to go until I hit road construction, and then I missed my first turn. Oh, by the way, that was two hours before the kickoff for the football game and a mile away. And so traffic was horrible. Uh, I was in rare form. And, uh, you know, I'm not a preacher every day. (laughs) You know, know, just on Sundays, right. Now, I'm a pastor every day, but I just preach on Sundays. Uh, you know what I discovered? Yes, this is kind of an aside, but uh, even nurses in Houston are not nice if you wear the wrong shirt on game day. <laughs> but all that confusion, if you will, really is secondary to the real confusion that I got when I tried to leave the hospital. This is St. Luke's, and so you know the, the whole system that is down there. Uh, and so I knew which color elevator I came in on and I knew where I parked. I even, cause I wasn't born yesterday. I took pictures so that I could find my way out. Cause it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. Um, so I found myself standing in front of one of those placards with a statement that says, you are here. Okay, I knew I was here. I didn't need that help. What I needed to know was, where's my car? And how do I get there from here? Well, obviously I made it out, so let me close that part of the story with that. And let me transition with this. Where are you today? We don't have one of those placards up here that says, here's where you are. But I want you to answer the question, and I want to be targeted in the way that I ask that. I especially want to know, where are you with regards to Jesus? Now, I know enough to know that most of us in this room, maybe even all of us in this room, would have a good, solid theological answer about where we are with Jesus. And we would go back to those basic doctrinal truths, uh, and we would pull those out and say, that's where I am with Jesus. And that's all well and good, but I want you to to dig a little bit today. I don't want, I'm not going to settle in my own life and I don't want you to settle for the easy answer here because I think this is a deeper question and moves us to some deeper levels of our Christian life than what we tend to want to go. Where are you with Jesus? Be careful how you answer that. So to help you answer it in a little more deep kind of a fashion, let me give you two other ways to ask the same question. What do you believe about Jesus? And here's where it's easy for us to go to those nice tried and true statements that we all have. He's the son of God. That's true. Uh, He's our savior. That's true. Do you believe those things? But what about beyond those things? So let me give you another question that's tied to the same basic thrust. How do you see Jesus? I mean, what is your perception of him in your ongoing everyday life? And here's the reason I'm asking all of those questions. The way we see Jesus directly impacts the level of life that we have. That's a big statement, and it's going to take a while for me to pull all of that and unpack it it this morning. Uh, So I'm going to really encourage you to listen with both ears for the whole sermon, okay? And I'll try to pull it down so that we're not here forever. I don't want to tax anybody, and certainly I know we have other things on our schedules. But I want us to to begin this series that we're beginning today in the book of John by by challenging a little bit some of our... uh, ordinary thinking about Jesus because the reality is that Jesus is extraordinary, not ordinary. But you see, we settle into this ordinary approach with him and we fall back into some of those basic doctrinal truths without expanding as we need to. So with that in mind, Again, the way we see Jesus, the way we perceive Jesus, the level of belief that we have in Jesus and about Jesus directly impacts the level of living that we experience. Let me give you a couple of examples um, to flesh that out a little bit. Um, A lot of people, and I, I need to give you a disclaimer here because I don't want to sound like this is one of those things where the preacher's mad. That's not what this is about. I I believe that there's a level of life out there in the Christian life that most Christians never get to. And so that's what I'm kind of pushing for this morning. And I guess if I could be totally transparent with you, I want to bait you a little bit today. 
I want to bait you into pursuing a deeper experience with Jesus Christ. I don't care how deep it is right now. There's always a deeper level out there. And so the way we do that is we challenge some of the things that we hold to be ordinary that really are much more than just ordinary truth. So here's the first example. Some people see Jesus as their ticket out. And what I mean by that is, is there, there is this kind of a default, I think, that we, we sometimes fall into. It is theologically sound as far as it goes. And that is that Jesus is our passport out of this world into heaven. Now, I'm not challenging whether that's valid or not. Uh, but let me make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. Jesus as a passport from this world into heaven. We talk about that a lot when people die. And we have loved ones who die. And, and this you know, tomorrow, one of the matriarchs, if you will, of our church, Judy Mitchell, uh, will have her funeral service in this building. And so this is fresh on my mind. It's fresh on a lot of our minds. Uh, this idea that when this life is over, Jesus is our passport into heaven. Well, as far as it goes, that's fine. But here's some of the deal. You ever had to deal with a passport? You ever travel internationally so that you really do need that document? See, here, let me, every once in a while I pull the covers back on me and my life just so you can see how human your pastor is. So right before we moved here, a couple of months, well, really about a month and a half before we moved here, uh, five and a half years ago, Teresa and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And we found ourselves late in the tour, uh, probably halfway through or so. We went to Jerusalem uh, and we spent several days in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that our guide told us early on in the tour was, you need to have your passport with you at all times. And then he said, but don't let anybody steal it from you because then you just have a world of problems. So that made me paranoid everywhere, everywhere we went. I'm holding on that passport and trying to make sure that I didn't do anything wrong with it. So we found ourselves in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things about Jerusalem that sometimes we don't get here in the States is that Jerusalem is divided up into different groups. And the Muslims control part of it and the Israelis control part of it. And we went that day to the Wailing Wall... To get there, you have to go through all kinds of security, and it's this high, holy place for, for the Jews. And so we go there, we spend a little time at the Wailing Wall, then they take us up through a walkway, and we go through this checkpoint of sorts onto the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is controlled by Muslims, not the Israelis. And so essentially you're going from one national point to a different national point just separated by a gate. Um, the Temple Mount, in case you're wondering, is, is it's controlled by the Muslims. There's two different mosques there. Both of them are historic and uh, high holy places in the Islamic faith. Uh, and one of those is the most famous picture that you get of Jerusalem. Usually it's the gold-domed building, right? So that's the Temple Mount. And so they cut us loose when we got through those gates. They said, we'll get you through the gates and then you'll have some time uh, to go explore around a little bit, and then we'll meet back over here at a certain period of time. So we did that, and we walked around. Uh, and I was having some back issues in those days, and so we I'm recovering from back surgery. And so we stopped to sit down at one point, just right probably from here to the sound booth back there from that gold-domed mosque. 
We found a shady place. We sat down for a little bit, and I took my hat off and, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and so then we got up, and we walked around, and we spent another hour or two there on the Temple Mount, Muslim-held territory. And we gathered back into the area where our tour group is meeting so that we can leave. And as we all gather there, this guy walks up to me, and he holds up a document, he's looking at me, and he says, okay, I think this is you, and he hands me my passport. I told you, this is the pastor you got. Um, and so apparently what had happened was, as we sat down there, my passport fell out, and then we got up and walked away with it laying there. Now, first of all, the first thing, y'all know my wife. You know, she's loving and supportive and all that kind of stuff. The first thing she says is she looks at me and she says, oh, Mark. (laughs) That wasn't enough, though. The guy chose the moment when all the rest of our tour was gathered together there. And our tour guide then began to chastise me like I was a young child. Okay, now... That's not my proudest moment. You just got to know. And so I was more embarrassed and a little bit upset about the whole thing. Uh, And I tried to let it go and it still ate at me. You know, here's when that became a really big deal for me. When we went to leave that tour and we went to the airport in Tel Aviv, the first thing that one of those military police officers, whoever it is that they use at that Israeli airport, the first thing that guy said to me was, let me see your passport. And it dawned on me at that point just how serious a deal it is to leave it. You know, I could still be stuck in Israel, I suppose. So let's translate that into spiritual life and spiritual truth. Many people approach Jesus as if he is just their passport out of this world into another. And that's okay as far as it goes. As a matter of fact, I would say to you right now that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, then you don't get to heaven eventually. That's just spiritual truth, not because I'm trying to be limited or judgmental or anything like that. The reality is Jesus says, well, here's where we get to this. In John's gospel, John makes a number seven to be exact statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the blanks afterward. Now that's electrically charged language for the Jews, and it should be for us too, because Jesus adopts The name of God, as he pulls that over from the Old Testament, you remember the Ten Commandments and Moses at Sinai and Moses Moses at the burning bush, who should I tell them that sent me? And he says, you tell them that I am sent you. And so Jesus now in, in John's gospel, and we'll see this systematically as we work through this, he lays out seven different huge statements, earthquake kind of statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he'll use a different kind of a metaphor on the end of it to explain a little bit of his character for us. And so on this point, the passport idea, the the, the move from one world into another, Jesus says in John's gospel, I am the way. That's John 14. 
Remember the passage? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What does he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. So this idea of Jesus as a ticket to heaven or a passport from one world into another is biblical. Jesus at another point will say in John 10, I am the door for the sheep. But here's the deal, okay? That, that's truth. And if you don't have that truth down, that's where you start today. But if that's all John wanted us to get about the life of Jesus, why did he include all this other stuff? All the teachings of Jesus. Another one of the, the markers for the gospel of John for us is Jesus makes seven different uh, statements about who he is, not with what he says, but with what he does. And theologians call it the signs, seven different signs. We would call them miracles that testify of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be talking in this series about the words and the works of Jesus. But part of those words point to him being our, I'm going to use my term, passport, if you will, from one life into another. The problem for us is that if we buy into that as the end all, then it really makes no demands on us once we get our passport. Let me say it this way. If all we really care about is fire insurance to keep us out of hell and Jesus is that, then once we have that, we don't really need him until we die. But you see, that's that borders on being heresy. Because the reality is we do need him. So I want us to be careful. And, and again, I'm baiting us a little bit because I, I know that our, I'm, I'm convinced, I've served in a lot of churches, been around this for a long time. I know that many Christian people address the whole Christian life as if it all begins and ends. When I accept Christ as my Savior and I get baptized, then I got my fire insurance and I'm good to go. My passport is in hand from this world into heaven. The problem with that is Jesus makes some demands of us as we will see shortly. Clearly there's got to be more than just Jesus as our passport or our ticket to heaven. So some of us, let me give you a different example here. By the way, this is all introduction to the sermon. Imagine how long this sermon is going to be. Some of us have a perspective of Jesus. We see Jesus as if he is our comfort zone, our safe place. I see this a lot as a pastor. I live through this. I was having a discussion even this morning. Uh, people, you know, kind of comparing where I am this year to compare where I was last year when I was having back issues and viral infection in my spine and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I get it. The reality is that all of us face things in life that are beyond us. And when we face those things, we run to Jesus in times like that. And he becomes that comfort zone, or maybe to pull a different picture out, he becomes that uh, security blanket. You know, our, our son, Colin, many of you know him, uh, he had a pillow when he was growing up. He called it because he was akin to me. He had trouble talking. He said, uh, that's my Bia. And we knew when things weren't right with him because he would 
kind of start whining a little bit and said, I just want my biah. And you give him his pillow, biah, and all of a sudden the world was right for him. And a lot of kids have those kind of things. My granddaughter has an elephant that is nasty, dirty, because it's her comfort zone. Well, many of us are like that with Jesus. Things start going a little bit south in our life. We recognize that life often is beyond us, and that becomes the moment. Because we have the ticket, the passport, because we have salvation secured, we know that we can run to him, and so that's what we do. And again, Jesus himself and John and his gospel underscore the validity of that for us because one of those I am statements that we will study as we work through this, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What a great picture he gives us of the caring guidance that we need when we are most weak. It is true. Jesus provides care for us. But here's one of the things. So again, I'm trying to get us to look beyond and beneath the surface of some of the perspectives that we take of Jesus. As good as that is and as valid as that is, one of the things that it sets us up for, if we're not careful, is marginalizing Jesus in our life. In other words, when I need you, I'll come get you. But when I don't need you anymore, I'm going to put you on the shelf so that you'll be right there where I need you next time I need you. But you see, that's an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. So what we're doing now is we begin to see with these kind of things that it's really easy for us to slip into a, a normal, what we would call normal, I think scripturally it would be an abnormal, but we consider it normal, approach to the Christian life that marginalizes Jesus in multiple ways. I think that it's critical that we settle on the right view of Jesus and the right kind of belief that we carry about Jesus. And that's what John underscores. And so finally, the introduction is over. Let's go to the passage of Scripture that, that I think helps support all of this. And by the way, I've got about maybe 10 minutes and we'll be done. John chapter 20 is the end of the story of Jesus as John lays it out for us. Actually, there's another chapter that follows this. But we come to John chapter 20 and it falls hard on the heels of the resurrection. And there have been these sightings of Jesus by these disciples um, but we, we come to the end of this discussion that John has, and finally at the end, John says, okay, by the way, here's why I'm writing this gospel. And I should just tell you, and we'll talk more about this as we go, but uh, John writes this gospel in a way that the other gospel writers don't do. And I'm not going to try to preach it the way I normally do, which is start at the beginning and just walk through it. And one of the reasons I'm not going to do that is because it would take us a year to get out of chapter 1. Some of the deepest theology that we find in the New Testament is wrapped up in chapter 1 of John's gospel. And, and John doesn't bother starting off with, with, with the birth of Jesus. He just jumps full-blown into this deep swimming pool of theology. And at the end now, he says, okay, so let me tell you why I wrote this. 
John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so there's two elements there very quickly that I want to highlight today. And then we're going to come back and we'll start systematically working through the seven signs or miracles that Jesus did. And then we'll look at the seven statements of who he was when he said, I am this. But these two elements come out of verse 31. The first one is, um, John says, I write this so that you might believe. Well, belief as it turns out, comes in different levels. Here's the first example of that. I'm going to give you two examples out of Scripture here very quickly, both of them in John's Gospel. Uh, But one of those comes for this guy named Thomas. And you remember, we called Thomas by a special name. It's a term of, uh, the word is derision. In other words, we have no respect for Thomas. So before I read this, let me make sure that we give Thomas a fair shake. If I came to you, And said, hey, your grandmother who died 20 years ago was seen walking through Walmart this morning. Would you think I was nuts? Well, you might be right about me being nuts. But uh, that's kind of the scenario that we have with Thomas. Jesus had already appeared to some of the other. Well, let me just read it here. So John chapter 20 verse 24 Uh, Through 29, here's what we find. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Jesus had already appeared to some of the other disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, you're nuts. Well, that's not what scripture reads here, but that's a little bit of free interpretation for me. Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. In other words, I have to see this. My belief is based on what I see. Jesus responds to that in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said... Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, okay, big boy, now's your chance. Well, again, a little free interpretation, but I think it captures the moment when Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In other words, okay, I get it. Before I read any further, let me just ask you. What is your level of belief in Jesus? How do you see him? Do you have to see evidence? You know, we live in a world that demands evidence that would underscore the truth of the gospel. But you know what? Jesus isn't walking around flesh and blood anymore. Well, that might be a different kind of way to talk about it. I suppose we could say maybe he is through us, but... Whatever, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so in other words, Jesus underscores, there are levels of belief here. Some people need the evidence, other people, they just believe. So how do you see Jesus today? Is it possible that you're in here and the reason that you don't cast your lot in with a bunch of Christians is because you don't have enough evidence? Different levels of belief. 
Here's another one. This one's over in John chapter 11. This is the event where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And there's different levels of belief all through this little story, but in the interest of time, I want to try to pull it together for us. And we'll read from verse 23. Because Jesus is showing up now, and in verse 23, here's what he, in the middle of a conversation with Martha, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, remember, various levels of belief. Her point of reference is, I believe later. I believe that he will rise again, the resurrection, later. That's not what Jesus is talking about with her. He knows what's about to happen. She doesn't. And her faith in it, well, okay, let's give her some credit here. Because she had enough belief early in this passage, we're not reading it here, but when he got sick, she sent for him. So she had enough belief that something was about Jesus. He had something going on there. I don't believe she was fully formed in her faith or anything like this at that or like that at this point. But she has enough belief that she calls for him. He doesn't show up in time. Lazarus, her brother, dies. And when he gets there, her belief is strong enough to say, if you would have been here, he would not be dead. That's pretty good belief. And so Jesus now, don't miss this. This is the heart and soul of what I'm talking about today. Jesus is not content to leave her in her elementary faith. He's about to do something that will vault her into advanced faith. It's going to be one of those signs that we talk about, one of those miracles that underscores who he is, that demands of us a more mature belief system. And so he continues the conversation with her. She says, where was I? Verse 23, 24. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. There's one of those I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here, don't miss this. Jesus never lets us off the hook on our belief system. She has a level of belief. He now is moving her to another one, but he puts her in a crisis of belief. He gives her new information. It's not that her belief was wrong. It's just that it wasn't full. So Jesus nudges her. Nope. Jesus shoves her into a deeper truth. And then he pins her down. Do you believe this? So where am I? Verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Interesting reality, these things, I think. Let's put it this way now. With that exchange and the movement of Martha into a different parameter of seeing Jesus, do you suppose that her belief system was deeper after Lazarus came out of the tomb? 
Here's what I want you to get from all of this. No matter where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ, there's more. You can go deeper. He has more for you than you're currently experiencing. And certainly that's true if what you're experiencing is based on one of those two models. And there are more of them, but one of those two models that I talked about where Jesus is just a passport out of this life into heaven. I got my fire insurance. I'm good to go now. Jesus, leave me alone. Or Jesus is my security blanket and, you know, I got all these nice little sayings that I whip out when I get a little bit. Jesus, God is good all the time. Well, that's true. But there's more to it than that. So with that in mind, maybe we should finish up here with a little bit of a look at what, uh, what John's talking about. Back to John 20. I want to give you one more time the words that he says in verse 31. Because there is a world of growth in this one little statement that he makes. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we just got through talking about. The Son of God. And, here we go, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what is that life? And we could, and we would be sort of right. If we said, well, that's, that, that's the passport. We, we live in Christ and we, we get eternal life and we limit eternal. Interesting how we limit the word eternal. Eternal eternal life we limit to be in some kind of a quantity. Whereas the biblical, full biblical picture of the word is it is quantity indeed, but it is quality as well. At least two different times, and we've read both of these or had discussions about both of these in one way or another in this sermon. At least two different times, Jesus pulls this word life into his I am statements. And one of them was in over in John 14, was it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We often want to limit that to just the way. What does he mean when he says I am the life. In another place, John 11, that thing with Lazarus, he says to, Mar- to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. What does he mean by that? What are the claims that he's making there? And we will unpack those as we go through the next 10 to 14 weeks, roughly. But for today, let me pull it down to this. In John chapter 15, verse 1, another one of those I am statements, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. And the picture that we have here is that life means being attached to him. But you see, being attached to him is not the same thing as him being your security blanket that you pull off the shelf when you need it. And being attached to him is not the same thing as, um, as that passport I was in Houston two hours before the kickoff of the playoff game. I was, I don't know, was that a mile from the stadium? Might as well have been 10,000 miles. These people, fans, fans are funny. Pro sports fans are funny. Because we, and I, you know, I fall into this. I love the Texans. I love the Cowboys. Um, and the Spurs, and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. But we attach ourselves to these guys who are making more money than most of us will ever make in our entire lives playing a game. 
and we spend money on shirts and car decals. I'm all for that. That's fine. Knock yourself out. I don't have any trouble with that until your team starts beating my team. Then we've got issues, man. Isn't that funny? And it's all around this basic thing that it really doesn't matter in the scope of eternity whether the Cowboys win or not. But we attach ourselves to that kind of stuff in life. I wonder how attached to Jesus we are. I wonder, really, how attached. See, the the visual that Jesus gives us here is organic. Being attached to the vine means that you're drawing life from the vine. This is not a spot kind of life. This is, I depend on this. So how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as the one on whom you depend for life? Or is he just kind of an afterthought in your daily existence? Organic. Here's what I think the relationship does for us. Two quick things and we'll be gone. Matter of fact, our musicians need to come on up at this point. Um, we, we went to Odessa, I told you that. Drove 11 hours to get there. It was almost midnight when we got there. Um, and so Teresa's sister was waiting up for us. And so we sat down and had what, whatever kind of conversation you can have after that kind of a day. But we got up the next morning, and she was there, and she already had breakfast cooked, and my brother-in-law was there. He's a hard-working guy. Usually he's out before the sun comes up going to work. And, uh, and he sat around that day, and we spent about four hours just sitting around visiting with one another. Because we're family. We're attached. Is that a characterization of your relationship with Jesus? That attached kind of just pulling life from him and sharing his life in your own. Is that you? Uh, Here's another part of this, how it impacts our daily life. Um, we went out there to deal with my mother-in-law. She's in assisted living. She's in her mid-80s, I think mid-80s. Uh, she's not well. She's probably uh, in the latter phase of her life. No, no question, she's in the latter phase of her life. Uh, and she's asked me uh, during this phase of her life to oversee her own personal business affairs. Well, you know what? <laughs> uh, I need help with that. I, I, don't, I know how much money she has. And I know, see, I don't know. How much time does she have left? You know, if she had $5 million, she probably could live comfortably from now on and I wouldn't worry about it. But if she has $5,000, I need to know how long she's going to live, right? Hello? You face that kind of stuff in life where you face issues that you need some input on? Everybody should go like this because we all face those whether you know you do or not. And so part of being attached to the vine, don't forget Jesus is the creator of this thing we call life. What better resource about how to get through life than the one who designed life? You see, there's the picture of Jesus. There's the belief point for all of us. Who is Jesus to you? Are you attached? Are you associated? Big difference. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me pull the invitation down for you this way.
If you don't know Jesus in a personal way, and you've never reached the point where you have trusted him, back to that passport thing I was talking about, he is in fact the gate. He, there is no life except through him. You don't come to the Father except through him. And so if you know that you're lacking that life, then the invitation for you today is that you accept the life that he's given to you. I'll be down here. Others would love to talk to you about what that means and what that looks like. Nobody's going to try to coerce you into anything. And if you're not ready to do that today, at least consider having the conversation so that you can understand it well enough to know what the offer is. But you can have that today when you walk out of this room. A genuine relationship with Jesus Christ that gets life for you in this life and after. Many of us have long since made the decision to trust Christ for our salvation, but it's very possible that some of what's been sung today or some of what's been said today or maybe even just the Holy Spirit dealing with you about something totally different where you're sitting, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, is saying, hey, this part of your life needs some attention. Who is Jesus to you? How attached are you? This invitation time could be a total turning point. Maybe that means joining the church and saying, well, I'm going to work here with these people who want to honor God and help share that life. Maybe it means that God's calling you to ministry. Who knows? Any number of things. But the question before you is, what do you do with Jesus? Father, we ask you to take this time, use it for your glory, and change lives. In Jesus' name, amen.